Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Middleton. That guy right over there is Big Bad Billy Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. It's the program that shows you that it is possible to make small changes in your life that can actually lead to some pretty big rewards and help you become the person you've always wanted to be. In the next hour, we will meet one of the world's oldest triathletes. We'll also meet a former Microsoft executive who one day just decided to walk away from it all. And wait till you hear how what he chose to do instead is changing the world and has resulted in PBS actually naming this guy one of the greatest leaders in America. That's not it. We're going to talk to a musician-turned-author who got a glimpse of what it's like to be a musical superstar through a little bit of trickery. And we're going to meet a woman who not only survived a battle with breast cancer, but thrived in the face of it. Advice we could all use and stories that make you believe you can accomplish anything. This is Growing Bolder. I guess when it comes right down to it, this show is meant to encourage you to make a change in your life. The changes you always wanted to make, but for whatever reason, you just don't. Well, what you learn from every guest we have on this program is not only do you owe it to yourself to try, but in most cases, things change dramatically for the better when you do. <laughs> and our next guest changed his life about as dramatically, Mark, as I think anybody ever has. Yeah, he really did. He was a regular on the hottest radio program in the country, uh, right behind Growing Boulder, of course, <laughs> the Howard. Stern show. We're not quite as controversial, though. He was living in the Big Apple. He was making all of the contacts and connections for what could have been a great career, but he gave it all up. And when we last had him on the program, he and his wife had just hopped on their bicycles. They rode from New York to Seattle, then Seattle to San Diego, all because of their fascination with farming. Let's find out what has happened since as we say hello to Sussie John Suskovich. Hey, Sussie, how are you? I'm great, guys. How are you doing today? Uh, we're anxious to update your story. Give us the advance. Has what started out as simply an adventure for you and your wife actually turned into a lifestyle? Absolutely. Uh, you know, since since we left the, the Big Apple, as you said, and that was a, a heck of an introduction. Thank you very much. Uh, since we left New York City, we've had, you know, 5,500 miles of adventure visiting family farms and craft breweries across America. And now, because we were so enthralled with what we found in farming and agriculture, I'm actually starting a farm of my own this year. Mm, congratulations. So, John, are you on the road now? Did you decide to, to settle in? Where, where are you? Uh, right now, Kate and I are in New Milford, Connecticut, and that's where we're going to be for uh, the next, you know, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I'm setting up a farm here, and we actually have a baby due in July, so we're, we're sticking foot for a while. You know, but before we, we, we learn more about what you've learned, uh, you know, let's go back to when you were leaving, because Howard gave you a, a hard time, to say the least. In fact, I think he said, I gave you four weeks and you will come crawling back. Uh, it has been a lot longer than that. Uh, even you couldn't have expected things to turn out this way. Uh, no, I didn't expect it to turn out this way at all. And that's, you know, the, the trip started as just something that I wanted to do. And I couldn't tell people that you know, I just wasn't happy living in the city and I wanted to change. I, you know, I had to wrap it up uh, in this adventure and this adventure really changed my life. And, you know, that four week mark went by and then the one year mark went by and I think we're working on two or more years now. And I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Absolutely happy. John, do you get, though, that nobody really likes living in the city? We all have other things that we wish we were doing. In fact, that's where great literature poetry, movies, everything comes from our journeys through life to trying to get to do what it is and discover what it is that we really want to do. How'd you know so quick? Uh, uh, I didn't know so quick. And I was in the city for four years. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut, uh, moved to New York City. And at first, I loved it. I loved the, the thrill of city life and just the pulse and the beat of the city. Uh, and it was wonderful. And I made, uh, like you said, a lot of connections and things were going really well. There was just something kind of pulling at my heart uh, to go in a different direction. And through agriculture, I've definitely found that. You know, and kudos for you, because we talk often about the fact that, you know, success can be one of the most difficult traps of all to get out of, especially success in media. Uh, and, and you walked away from that. So you've told us you've got your own farm, you're expecting a child. How are you going to make a living and what will that living look like? Uh Right now, I am uh, actively marketing my chicken and herb CSA. So I sell uh, for 20 weeks during the summer. You get a fresh chicken every week. 
uh, and members buy in ahead of time. It's very similar to a vegetable CSA, also known as a, a farm share program, where they make the investment in me, and I'm guaranteed to deliver them fresh food every week for 20 weeks. Uh, I'll also be selling fresh dried and potted herbs at the farmer's market, and I have uh, two websites that I've been developing right now that uh, hopefully we'll be bringing in uh, a few more dollars as, as they, they grow and develop. John, are they up yet, or is, are you doing things through foodcyclist.com? Well, one of them is foodcyclist.com, and that has become not only the documentation of my adventure through life, but also my farm website, so people can go there to sign up for our CSA. I also have the website Farm Marketing Solutions, where I help other family farmers develop their marketing strategies and business plans, uh, and I launched my own radio show as well uh, on that topic. And where, where do all of these things intersect for for you, John? What what about what you're doing appeals most to you? Is it is it sustainable agriculture? Is it getting away from the city? Is it being able to live a simple life with your family? Is it providing us with healthy nutritional options? Uh, you know, what most motivates you? Uh, a D, all the all the above. Yeah. I I definitely have a lot of motivations, and I I would say that through the trip and through what I'm doing right now, uh, the biggest motivator, the thing that, that moves me the most is that connection that I have with people. The letters that I get written in or the emails or the notes on Facebook uh, with people saying that the information that I provided has helped them through a situation or helped them advance their business or you know, just assisted them in some way to take that step towards you know, growing bolder in life. You know, usually when people, and thank you for that reference, by the way, it was a nice job. Uh, usually when people set off on their own path, there still is somebody they can point to that says, you know, I kind of want to do like that guy, or I, I want to go that direction. Have you had somebody, John, to pattern yourself after, or are you making this up as you go? Uh, I draw my inspiration from a number of people. You know, when it was adventures, it was Alistair Humphreys. He has a website, alistairhumphreys.com. He has made a living out of being an adventurer. He's, you know, done back-to-back marathons across the Sahara and rode across the English Channel, uh, and you know, just had done a number of things. And he's very inspirational. And when I started out on my trip, and you know, it was supposed to be around the world, and we got to California and decided to come back and farm, I wrote to Alistair and said, "Am I crazy for, you know, saying I was going to go around the world and stopping and starting a farm?" And he gave me one of the best pieces of advice uh, that I've ever gotten. And you know, he said. John, riding your bicycle around the world is not about riding your bicycle around the world. It's about opening yourself up to new possibilities, to new adventures. And that is exactly what I did. Uh, and, you know, that's got me where I am today. I want to know more about these chickens. Uh, so so <laughs> I want a chicken. I'll, you're you're going to send chick, chickens to everybody uh, once a week, once a month. Uh, you, you subscribe to a chicken delivery. Is that it? Yeah, you're si- uh, signing up for a chicken delivery, and I'll have a pickup point at a I made friends with a local vineyard, so that'll be, you know, you can pick up your chicken there and uh, do a little wine tasting as well. And what my my chickens are, I raise them on pastures. They're out eating grass and bugs and being very healthy. Uh, And I move them around every day, so they're always on fresh grass. And I process process them all myself, so they don't go through a large facility that, you know, they can be contaminated. They're not fed any hormones or, you know, there's no genetic engineering uh, no antibiotics. They're the cleanest, healthiest, most delicious chicken. It's wow. chicken that finally tastes like chicken. Now, now see, John, now, now here's a piece you're missing. I'm going to give you this for free, okay? Because the hard part for things is is delivery, right? So you're doing the product right. The second part that you've got to come together is the, is the delivery mechanism, the distribution mechanism. So may I suggest that you start UPS, the United Poultry Service? Well, yeah, yeah, that's a really great idea. And uh, I will definitely give you credit once that launches in the next couple of years. Um, but part of, you know, part of what I do is supporting the local food movement and keeping those dollars in town. So I want, um, you know, my, my audience for the, the chicken CSA is that, that local audience to new Milford, Connecticut and the surrounding towns that they come and develop a relationship with me that they really know their farmer and where their food is coming from. Uh, and there's no faceless, tasteless, uh, farmer, no tasteless food that's on their plate. It's something that they can really get behind. 
You know, one of the things we talk a lot about on this program, John, that, that, that resonates with people of a certain age is the fact that it is never too late to reinvent yourself. You know, a lot of us grew up thinking that, uh, uh, you know, beyond a certain age, we were stuck with what we had. We like it when young guys like you continue to reinvent yourself as well, because, you know, it's the risk doesn't seem to be the same that we all used to think that it was. If this doesn't work out, there's always something else. And if that doesn't work out, there's always something else. Uh, it, the, the fact that you stepped away from a big job and, and have found success and have found fulfillment. Does that liberate you in a way to think the rest of your life is going to be fabulous? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it adds that positive spring in my step every day that I'm doing what I love and I'm my own boss and I make my decisions. And there's, you know, there's highs and lows, absolutely. You know, not every day is sunshine and flowers, but, you know, you take the good with the bad and the highs are definitely more than the lows. And there's a lot of risk involved. Um, but, you know, as long as you keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, uh, keep learning, never stop learning. Uh, I think everything will work out. You know, the more good you put out in the world, the more good you're going to get back. Do you let yourself look back once in a while? Do you listen to the Stern show and do you hear from uh, anybody at the, in the Stern gang? Uh, I actually, I, I'm, I'm, I think I got blacklisted from the show. Uh, when I, when I first started working there, uh, I was in my very, very early twenties. Not that I'm an old guy now by any stretch. Um, but I had pulled a prank on my boss and I think he took it the wrong way. And they found out years later that it was me. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't out, uh, at the time. And I think I've been blacklisted because I've, I've talked to a few people on the show since then, you know, just over email friends of mine. Uh, but nobody has called me for an interview. So I'm just curious there. And this prank did not involve loss of life in any way, did it? Uh, no, there's a there's a website online where you can mail poop to somebody anonymously. <laughs> yeah. uh, so yeah, I, I John, mailed my, my I, boss some, some elephant poop. I I kind of think we probably wouldn't call you back if that were if that were the case either. So we'll yeah. we'll be watching yeah, for. It's in a sealed bag, but it's uh you know it's anonymous and it was a prank and it was it was harmless. I didn't mean anything malicious by it, but I think. Uh, even for that show, maybe I crossed the line there. No, but, you can't cross the line for that show. My goodness. Yeah. Yes, but maybe it was good that you did step out and you got into farming. And, you know, you, <laughs> you're going to be bigger than the king of all media. And one day, John, he will be calling you to get a little extra exposure. We'd really admire what you've done because, you know, you pull at something in our own hearts uh, that's deep inside, as I said, everybody, and trying to find that thing it is that gives you purpose in life. And, and you did a great job in finding it. I also want to congratulate your wife, Kate, not only on the upcoming uh, birth of, of your first child, but the fact that she has decided to stay with you. When you do something like that, I guess you either create a bond that lasts forever or you break up in an instant. Anyway, you can keep up with John's adventure, but maybe more important, find out about the foods you eat and how to better protect your health at his website, foodcyclist.com. Great catching up with John Suskovich. Up next, proof that attitude does make a difference even when you're fighting for your life against cancer. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit GrowingBoulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. You're listening to Growing Boulder Radio with Mark and Bill. People who listen to this show always ask, is there anything that all of your guests seem to have in common? Some link that they share that maybe motivated them to make the changes in their lives? And you know what? There really is. The one thing that everybody seems to have in common is that everybody's faced a challenge, an obstacle, something in their lives they had to overcome. For some, it's finances, could be relationships or health. It could be anything. Yeah, it's called life. Yeah. Sooner or later, we're all going to get knocked back, folks. And with that in mind, we've created a series of television specials that we call Surviving and Thriving. They air in Central Florida. And because as you hear uh, w with our guests, they don't just get by, they actually thrive in the aftermath. We want to share one of those stories with you now. It's the story of someone who thought she'd be the last person in the world 
to get cancer, but she did, and it's the way she decided to face it that had a lot to do with how she came through it. We knew it looked like there was something going on with me, but we didn't think it was breast cancer. Julie Tharp had found a lump, but it couldn't be serious, she thought. It developed right where she'd recently bruised herself, but... For some reason, all of a sudden, I said, this doesn't feel right. So she went for a mammogram, and they immediately suggested a biopsy, and hours later... I received a phone call from my gynecologist's office, and they said, it's breast cancer. With those words, Julie knew her life would never be the same. She took a moment and decided right there how she would face it. I said, okay, I was given a diagnosis. It doesn't mean the diagnosis is going to own me. I'm going to own the diagnosis, and I'm going to do this on my terms. It would not be an easy diagnosis to own. Mine was a large mass on top of my breast, and they were worried that they would have to take my sternum, my ribs, skin and tissue from my back to reconstruct me. Her treatment was now in the hands of her doctors, but there was one thing she had total control over, and it turned out to be a most powerful asset, her outlook. You feel like an, an island going through it in the beginning, because when you receive a diagnosis, you go within yourself, and you have to find out what you're made of, because you can't help me. My husband couldn't help me. I had to determine how to help me, because it's about me and it's about my body. You know, I got to be the captain of the team, and I got to tell them what I agreed to and what I didn't agree to, but they were my experts. They knew what shots to call. And so as a group, we determined how best to address my needs and how to get me through it. It was that kind of attitude that made an impression on breast cancer specialist Dr. Nikita Shaw. Do you get a sense from the very first time that you meet a patient as to how well that they will do through the process. Absolutely, because I'm a big believer that a patient's outlook is everything. Patient's attitude is everything. You may have five people, same diagnosis, same stage, and the people who have a better outlook tend to do so much better. There's nothing to fear. We're all so much more powerful than the cancer. Even if we're not to beat it, we're more powerful. If, it, if I was not to beat it, I would have not spent my last year being afraid of it. Julie entered weeks and months of radiation and chemo and ultimately a mastectomy. She lost her breast, her hair, and her strength, but not her resolve. You want to ask me the worst thing I ever done was watching my dad die. This compares nothing to that. This was a bump in my road of life. This was a cross I got to bear for a year. And you know what? I got through it. Was it fun? Oh God, no. Would I want anyone else to go through it? Oh, hell no. Could I wish it gone? Yeah. Would I, have I ever said shoulda, woulda, couldas? Never. Have I ever questioned why me? Didn't enter my brain. Now, just over a year after the diagnosis, Julie's body is cancer-free, but her heart is full for the many others facing the fight because what she's experienced can help them not just survive, but thrive. Live your life. Don't let cancer stop you from doing anything, nothing at all. Go out in public, take your wig off, let people look at you. You know, there's nothing. You are not defined by your hair. You're not defined by cancer. You're defined by how you live through it. Julie, you've got your life back. What are you going to do with it now? I am going to live it to the fullest. I'm going to tell everyone around me I love them every day and um, find a way to give back to those who are going through this who need to hear it from somebody who came through it. You know, Bill, I think we all need to be hit over the head, head with a sledgehammer. I ask myself this all the time, so now I ask you because you did the story. Why does it seem to take a life-threatening or life-altering challenge before all of us get it that we need to start living life one day at a time? Yeah, we hear these stories and we know better. We just get caught up in the day-to-day. -day and you really, in, in a way, in the back of our heads, we never think it's going to happen to us. And that's what happened to Julie. But when it did, that switch went off and she stood up. She decided it wasn't going to change her. It wasn't going to defeat her and she was going to fight it. And we really appreciate Julie sharing her story with us.
If it's true that variety is a spice of life, then what's the spice of health? Did you know that indeed there are spices you can use strategically, not just to brighten up your diet, but to bolster your body as well? Well, let's find out more from registered dietitian and nutritionist, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Thanks, Bill. Hi, foodie friends. Out of habit, do you reach for the salt shaker to add flavor to food? Did you know that spices can add both flavor and health benefits? A few sprinkles of cinnamon or a pinch of rosemary or thyme can make all the difference in the aromas and taste of food. Plus, the emerging science on spices is fascinating. A study reported in the Journal of Nutrition found that seasoning a high-fat meal with an antioxidant-rich spice blend could enhance the body's antioxidant defenses and reduce negative responses, specifically decreasing the insulin response and triglyceride levels after a meal. You know, this is fascinating. There is so much that we don't understand about what we eat. And so what you're saying is that in a way, the right spices can give you a little bit of leeway in your food choices and kind of let you stray away from the straight and narrow every once in a while as long as you're smart about how you do it? Well, exactly. You know, are you curious about the what spices made up the blend? Oh, yeah. You know, I was. The spice blend included black pepper, cinnamon, cloves, garlic powder, ginger, oregano, paprika, rosemary, and turmeric. And, you know, Bill, these are spices that most people have at home in the cabinet already. And did you know that one teaspoon of cinnamon contains as many antioxidants as a full cup of pomegranate juice. That's right. Cinnamon contains polyphenols, which are antioxidants that may help regulate blood sugar levels. It's easy to add cinnamon to your diet. One of my favorite spices is cinnamon, and I add it to oatmeal. I sprinkle it on hot chocolate. And for a treat, I put a little cinnamon sugar on my toast. So be bold and add bold spices to your food. You know what I love about your advice? You don't tell us what to avoid or what to deny ourselves. You tell us what we can revel in and what's good for us. Dr. Susan Mitchell. Up next, an inside look at what it's like to be a true superstar of music from the point of view of a guy who never quite got there himself. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. This is Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and we're about to get a very unusual look inside the music business thanks to a really unusual book. It was written by a singer-songwriter named Billy Franks. And if you've never heard of him, well, 10 of the biggest stars of rock hadn't heard of him either. So why did they record songs for a tribute album to him? And that, my friends, is the beauty of Billy Franks. Yeah, he he really is an accomplished musician. He had hits in the U.K., even recorded a song for one of Prince Harry's charities. He made a documentary film. He's written a book about trying to get the Springsteen McCartney Tom Petty, Bon Jovi, and others to join in. And the twist and the surprise is what he learned about himself and about these superstars along the way. The name of the book, get this, is A Far Cry from Sunset. Can four friends travel five countries and get ten superstars to appear on a tribute album to one unknown songwriter? How is that for a title? Let's find out more as we welcome Billy Franks. Hey, Billy, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Man, we're we're thrilled. Uh, what what a crazy idea that turned out to be a great thing, and what an <laughs> unu- and what what an unusual idea. Where did that come from? Well, it's an interesting story. Here's how it started. I, I was offered a slot on a tribute album to Bruce Springsteen for a Spanish magazine, and um, I started recording this song. It was a song called "Stolen Car" from the River album, and. At the last minute, I think it was Elvis Costello put his name forward, and, and of course he's much better known than I am. So I got thrown off, and, and I was in Philadelphia with my three friends who run a 
independent film company, and I was telling them the story of a lost opportunity, and they were very sympathetic, and, and then I just said as a joke, I said, no, I'm not, I don't care. I'll just get 10 famous people to make a tribute album to me, and we <laughs> laughed, and then Nick McCleary, who was the director of the film, said, you know what? We should do it, you know, just go on the road in a very sort of guerrilla style, and talk to 10 famous people and see if we could talk them into being on a tribute album to you. And then we decided that any money made from such an album would go to a children's music charity and that would, you know, take the self-serving part of it out. And um, so we took our whole summer off and, and did it. It was the, probably the most fun I've ever had for eight months of my life. It was really lived life so brilliantly. It was fantastic. <laughs> Billy, what what did you end up with? Is this is this a music book, a, a pop culture book, a, a book about the industry? Well, it's two things. One, it's the story of our road trip, which took us really through five countries, you know, and and talk, trying to talk to these ten famous stars, and and also a bit of a memoir of my own musical life, which goes back three and a half, four decades almost, you know, from touring with U2 and Pete Townsend and R.E.M. and people like that. So um, it's two things. It goes forward in time, following the road trip, and backwards from when I was a boy, when I first fell in love with music, right up until the present day. Uh, the book, uh, the title, the, the truncated version of the title, is A Far Cry from Sunset. And, you know, I guess uh, the appearance would be that you're saying that you're far from being finished. Is that what it means? Well, kind of, yes. It, it does have that um, connotation, too. But the real the story behind it was this, is that when we started off, we managed to raise quite a bit of money. And, and we, were in, we started off and we, we ended up in Los Angeles and we were staying at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, which was very plush. We got it on a, a decent deal, so it didn't cost us too much. We all had poolside rooms, and it, it was a bit swank for us, really, with our budget. But by the time we got to the end of our trip, there was four of us in one room at the Economy Inn in Connecticut, and it was really, it was really quite dingy. And, and, I, and the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel was on Sunset Boulevard, and we were complaining about our hotel, and I said, yeah, it's a far cry from Sunset where we were at the time. Mm-hmm. And it stuck in my mind. And at first I wrote a song called that. And then when I was looking for a title for the book, that seemed an obvious choice to me. Hey, hey Billy, Mark mentioned, I mean, he mentioned some, some whopper names here. Springsteen, McCartney, Tom Petty, Bon Jovi. Yeah. Did, do you know these guys? Are they in your circle? No, or was it just was it just? No, a, not really, no. So um, how did you get, how did you even start to try to get a hold of them? Because we've been trying to get every one of them on the radio show. <laughs> well, you would then you'll know as much as I found out that it's not easy. Um, we we talked to a lawyer before we left, and they gave us all kinds of advice to go through publicists, and it's only very dull. Like, that wouldn't make a movie at all. And so we just said, look, we're just going to hit the road and just pester them, you know, go to hotels and sound checks and what have you. And, and of course, the lawyer said, "You know, you're crazy. You'll you'll meet publicists and managers from hell. You'll meet security that won't be very sympathetic, and even the stars might find it a bit obnoxious." But we thought, "Great, that's all the encouragement we need." You know, that sounds like a good movie to us. So that's what we did, and and some of them were very um, amused and 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 not put out. Some of them were very gracious. I have to say, and gave us some time, and, and we interviewed them on camera. And, and, and one very big name, who I can't tell you because I want people to read the book, invited us into his home, wow. which we, we didn't spend very long there before he threw us back out again. <laughs> so so the book is, is is out. The documentary film has already been made? Yes, and we, we a little while ago we took it on a tour of um, film festivals where it won a string of awards, and now there's talk of turning it into um, like a TV series instead of... It's a 90-minute feature film, but we did shoot 300 hours of footage, so um, we can make 10 episodes or 12 episodes, one featuring each of the stars that we tracked down. And is it a comedy? Are you guys making uh, Are you making fun of yourself? Uh, is it, uh... It's more comedy than anything else. <laughs> Our incompetence itself is funny enough, but there's a chemistry between the four of us that is really based on humor and Nobody beats a joke to death like the four of us. <laughs> so what happens, Billy, with you moving forward? Do you still keep writing songs, or are you a film yes. producer now um, and an author? Yeah, the book's still doing well. I mean, the word is out, and it's 
getting nothing but great reviews everywhere it goes, which is fantastic for me. Um, I'm halfway through another album. I just released a live album. I have actually uh, I got an offer for your listeners if they're interested. I've put together a collection of all my six solo albums. And for $15, they can get all six. They're usually like uh, $7 a pop. So all they have to do is go to the website, which is a far cry from sunset.com, and enter the password, which is Growing Boulder Rocks. All right. You get all the. All the albums at like a very cheap price. You know, you're a guy with a great sense of humor and a guy who did not take his business or himself too seriously. And, and it really does sound like a fascinating look into the ivory towers that some of these celebrities have inadvertently ended up in. Is, is that basically the takeaway? Do you know what the takeaway was for me? And I say this at the end of my book, and I don't mind revealing it here, is that we live, that summer we lived life so brilliantly and, and it was so full of laughter and, and we were, in our own way, it was so full of success. And, and I looked at these famous people and they seemed so hidden and cut off and, and protected. And I just thought, do they ever get to see life this fantastic, like uh, the way we were? And I said to myself, it almost, it was a thought, but it was like I said it out loud, like I wouldn't give one day of the life we were living for a year of any of theirs right now. What a surprisingly inspirational outcome of this book. What a great visit with musician, author, and good guy, Billy Franks. Up next, he was one of the top executives in the most progressive company in the world when he walked away from that to try to change the world. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. This is the Growing Boulder Radio Show. Bill and Mark here with you. And Mark, I love, I love the kind of interview we're about to do next because it's about a guy where one incident totally changed his life. Well, it happened for him in ways he never could imagine, and he's hoping that hearing his story can help change other lives, too, like that. Yeah, isn't that the exciting thing about life? You never really know what's next. This guy was a big shot at Microsoft and executive. He took a vacation hiking through the Himalayas, and he came across a school. Uh, the school was filled with students, but they had hardly any books. So a year later, he goes back with 3,000 donated books. Before long, he actually quit his job and began creating what has become the Room to Read Foundation, and he even wrote a book about it called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World, and in the last 12 years, Room to Read has established over 1,600 schools, 13,000 libraries, and provided 11 million books. How is that for making a difference? Let's say hi to John Wood. Hey, John, how are you? Hey, Mark. Hey, Bill. Good to talk to you guys. Man, uh, congratulations and thanks for what you did. You, you, you started this 12 or so years ago, so you're pretty much the guy that convinced Bill and Melissa Gates to actually do something good for this world, huh? <laughs> I don't know. Bill Bill always says that it started at home, that Bill's mother, Mary, was very philanthropic. And, you know, my parents were also great activists and volunteers when I was growing up. I, I was grew up in a middle-class family in a small town in Pennsylvania, and my parents always said, even if you don't have much, you can still do something. So I think that's really a lesson that I am lucky enough to have been blessed with parents who cared and parents who said, you can make a difference even if you're not a billionaire. Man, it must have been a major part of your life because, uh, as we mentioned, you you were in your mid-30s, a rising executive at uh, the the biggest corporation in the world. You know, we see a lot of people in their 60s and 70s reinventing themselves, but for you to leave behind the, the corporate world, the success that you had to do what you've done, uh, it, it must have felt like a risky move for you. It was. I mean, I think it was It was obviously risky financially, quitting technology to go devote myself to being a full-time do-gooder. Uh, it was also, I think, a little bit risky in terms of social status because people, you know, in America, the first thing they ask you at a dinner party when they meet somebody for the first time is, of course, what do you do? And I was going from saying I have a fancy title, I'm director of business development for Microsoft China, 
to now saying I deliver books in the back of yaks in rural Himalayan villages. <laughs> I want to go back to that one incident, John, that, that changed your life. That's such an interesting concept here. That All I can say to you is that must have been some hike. It was a great hike. It was not only the first hike in 1998 when the headmaster showed me that empty library and said we're too poor to afford education, but until we have education, we're always going to be poor. And that really hit me at a gut level as being the worst possible catch-22. You know, my, my father grew up in a very poor family. His father had a second-grade education. He was the only one of seven children to go to university. And the only reason he went was because of the GI Bill. And he said, he always told me, you know, we got lucky. We're in the middle class now because I got a college scholarship. And, you know, I grew up in a small town. We had a good public school. We had a school library. We had a public library. So our family was middle class, but we were were rich in books. We always had books around. And that was, for me, you know, the thing that really propelled me to where I am today was not that I'm any different from anybody else. I just happened to be lucky enough to be born in America and lucky enough to have had a lot of great teachers and parents who encouraged me to study. Uh, and it is interesting, and, and, and ironic may or may not be the right word, but, but a guy who, uh, you know, worked for a company, uh, the biggest software company in the world, you know, we, we hear a lot about a lot of people trying to provide technology for young students, you know, c- computer programs, but, uh, but man, you, you, you turned it back. Uh, it was books that, that, that was your thing. Yeah, we work in a lot of places around the world where they're, you know, the, the villages don't even have electricity. They certainly are not on the Internet grid, and technology is going to be you know, completely useless. If kids are illiterate, what are they going to do with a computer? You've got to teach them to read first. And I think sometimes I think there's a, a bit of a cop-out that people think we can throw technology at the problem. The reality is that what kids need in life is they need books. They need t- good teachers. They need their parents to set good examples. They need libraries. They need a chance to just, you know, better themselves through, the, through education. So at Room to Read, we're very fortunate. We've been able to open 1,600 schools. Uh, as you mentioned, we actually are now up to up to 15,000 libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hero, one of my heroes is Andrew Carnegie, because Carnegie opened thousands of libraries across North America so that being poor was no longer a barrier to getting educated. Well, we've emulated our hero Carnegie by doing 6x. We've now opened six times the number of libraries that he opened in his lifetime, and I think it proves you don't have to be a billionaire. You don't have to be a celebrity to go change the world. You can just be an average person who says, let's roll up our sleeves and go get the, go get the job done. Great point, John. And only in America could somebody like you do what you have done. But then on the other side, man, I sure wish there were more guys like you coming out of the business world that have this knowledge and the ability to put things together. You're lauded as being such a great leader as well. Can you talk about leadership and how that applies to what you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think leaders, you know, have to be humble. There's a lot of, you know, kind of arrogant leaders out there. And, you know, who wants to follow an arrogant leader? Uh, if I think if a leader is too full of themselves, people will follow that leader if you pay them. But when you're working in the social sector, you can't afford to pay much. You rely heavily on volunteers. So I've tried to lead by, you know, being accessible, being humble, being open and honest with people about where we're strong, where we're weak, and then just recruiting people. And, you know, one of the things we do to recruit is we tell people, you know, hey, without education, you're not you. Without education, I'm not me. And through Room to Read, we have a chance to pay that forward and help kids in the poorest parts of the world. In my book, I talk about the fact that a lot of kids today have have lost the lottery of life through no fault of their own. They're born in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they therefore don't get educated. And what we say to those kids is, don't worry, Room Read's coming. We're going to work with you. But a key part of our model is not that it's giving free gifts to the developing world. What we say to those communities is, we want to help you, but we only want to help you if you want to help yourself. So every single Room Read project, be it a new school or the building of a new library, uses and indeed requires community labor. So the local people are co-investing in their own solution. They have skin in the game. It's like an old-fashioned barn raising. The community comes out and helps to get that school built and that library open. That, I think, is an important point because you can't help people if they don't want to help themselves. We are talking to John Wood, a former Microsoft executive who left to change the world. In fact, he's written a book about it by that title, Leaving Microsoft to Change the World. And, and, and John, when you, we listen to you, this is the problem with politics in America. Guys like you aren't running for office. Uh, you know, they're out there trying to change the world. Uh, you were also featured in a documentary on PBS called Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide. You really are trying to change the world, aren't you? I'm trying my best, and indeed, my you know my entire team is. I'm very fortunate. We've built a great team. We have volunteer fundraising chapters now in 57 cities, so a lot of people are getting involved. 
you know, I'd make a pitch to your listeners that, you know, it's room to read's results are not because we have billionaires involved. It's because we just have average ordinary people who want to go out and do something. And one of the things that we've done a lot of is also incorporated adventure travel into philanthropy, that people will fund projects in places like Nepal, Vietnam, Laos, South Africa, Tanzania, but then go visit them. So we have people literally who are like, well, I want to go on a safari in Tanzania. As long as I'm going there, I might as well get my friends to rally around. We'll, we'll fund a project. We'll fund a library. Go visit it. And there's just nothing better than going off to the developing world as a tourist, but actually being part of the solution to global poverty, being in that school the day that the library opens. And I have a new book that's come out. Um, my, my, my new book is called Creating Room to Read, A Story of Hope in the Battle for Global Literacy. And in that book, I talk a lot about how people go off and visit their projects and how life-changing that is. Well, we talk about what you've already done, John, but the exciting thing and the optimistic thing is that we can tell that there is a lot more that you have planned to do in the future, and that's just fascinating. Folks, the new book that he's written is called Creating Room to Read. You can learn more about that book. You can learn more about that guy and all of his projects at roomtoread.org. Up next, we'll meet with one of the fastest 85-year-old triathletes in the world. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. You're listening to Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. And you know, like a lot of people, when Chuck Fruler hit the big 5-0, he felt that big kick in the pants to get off the couch and get out there and get himself into shape. So you know what? What? That's exactly what he did. At the age of 50, he ran in his very first triathlon. And I'm guessing, Mark, that he must have liked it because since then he's run, well, more than 150 of them. And he doesn't just go out there and take a walk through the park. I mean, this guy is ranked as one of the fastest in the country in his age group. And you know how old he is? You ready? How about 85? Go, Chuck. Yeah, really. So the question is, if he's doing it, why aren't we? Well, I can't wait to find out. Let's say hi to Chuck Fruler. Hey, Chuck, how are you? I'm fine, guys. How are you? <laughs> Man, you are an inspiring fellow. You know that? Because you know, if you were like the rest of us, and if you were looking for a way to keep active, you could have decided to play golf or take a walk. But triathlons, where'd that come from? <laughs> I never knew what a triathlon was until uh, 70, what was it, 80, uh, 81 was my first one. Uh, but I felt that I was more competitive in uh, triathlons than I was just running. I had started running uh, when I was 50. And, and tell us about the whole process of not only starting to, to compete but, but actually getting in shape because, you know, a lot of people try to get off the couch at a certain age, and, and, and it doesn't come easily to anybody, and it doesn't come quickly. You know, slowly but surely you begin to get in shape. How long did it take you to feel like, uh, you know, you were a new man? Oh, I noticed that within the first year. <laughs> but you had to stick with it for a year, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, what really motivated me is I was a typical salesman. I traveled a lot, was eating steak at nine thirty, ten o'clock at night, and uh, um, having too much to drink and uh, going back to a motel room. <laughs> and And uh, I'm guessing there was a downside to that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my counterparts were having heart attacks and, uh, uh, you know, alcohol problems and what have you. But uh, I read a uh, article. It was uh, in the Reader's Digest. It was a condensation of the Canadian Air Force fitness program. And that's what really got me uh, running. <laughs> You know, there's so many people, Chuck, who think that 50 is pretty old to get started as a triathlete, but you're still running them at 85. What kind of stuff are you made of? 
Well, I think I've got good genes, but I train hard <laughs> also. And is it harder to avoid injury at 85? I mean, uh, it's easy to overtrain, isn't it? Um, I don't know. Uh, I think it's a general uh, slowing down, uh, you know. Uh, there's an old saying that certainly is true. If you, uh, um, The older you get, the faster you used to be. <laughs> there's no denying that. And do you understand, Chuck, what it's like for others that are doing triathlons to to be in a race with a competitive guy who's eighty five? What that, how inspiring that is, and and what that message really means? Well, a lot of them tell me that. <laughs> it's good to be that guy, isn't it? Yes, yes, I enjoy it. <laughs> Folks, we're talking with 85-year-old Chuck Froehler, who's one of the top triathletes in the country in that age group. Chuck, did you ever run into uh, our pal, uh, you know, the late, great Charlie Futrell? Uh, no. Yeah. No. Charlie had passed away this past year at the age of 92, and I think at the time he was recognized as the oldest person to ever compete a regulation triathlon. Uh, how long do you think you can continue to compete? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm hoping to have a... <laughs> grand finale this year but you know if i'm able to i'll still do a few uh next year and uh um, thereafter as long as i can we've got a guy out here you may have heard of bill bell and if he's not 90 he's certainly huh. approaching 90 huh. and uh, he came back after laying off for a couple of years and he's back doing them again well, you know, obviously, we're not all going to run a triathlon, but 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 speak to the benefits in general of an active lifestyle. What has it done for you? Primarily, it's improved my quality of life. I uh, enjoy doing a multitude of things more than I did when I wasn't training and uh, competing. And it's given me more self-assurance, too, I think, or self-confidence. I think I'm like most people. I hear you. I understand exactly what you mean, and I agree with you. But I'll get out there, and my knees hurt, and my back hurts, and I just want to quit. Tell me you went through something similar. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's ridiculous now, but I lived about uh, three-quarters of a mile from the high school track. And uh, when I first started running, I would religiously get in the car drive the three-quarter of a mile over to the track, jog a mile, get in the car, <laughs> and drive back home. It never occurring to me that, hey, I could have walked or jogged over to the track, <laughs> did my mile, and walk or, <laughs> or jog back home. So it's an uh, it all evolves. Over time. You know, uh, Chuck, obviously there are a lot of great physical benefits to staying active, but we also hear from everybody that, that, that is near your age or older that does this that there's an equally uh, number of social benefits. Uh, you get to hang out with people, and in your case, we understand you got a, you got a pretty hot girlfriend. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she supports me in all this. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't still be doing it. Does it help uh, with, with, with your relationships, with your friends? Oh, absolutely, yeah. In what yeah. way? Well, I think, like I say, I feel younger. I act younger. I um, have more uh, get-up-and-go. And, go. and uh, I think if I wasn't uh, training and competing, I'd become like a lot of my <laughs> friends. They're couch potatoes, you know. Uh, they're spectators. Uh, they watch sports on TV or uh, get hooked on TV, and they eat too much, and uh, uh, they be develop a very sedentary uh, lifestyle. Yeah, and I'm sure, Chuck, you sometimes find difficult things to talk about where they're talking about, well, I, I'm this hurts, or I've got this ailment, or I went to this doctor. You're talking about, well, I, I'm going to run this race, and here's my new time, and Here's how I'm doing. I mean, do you find that you're hanging out with people that are younger than you are and that keeps Definitely. you young too? Definitely, yes. Very much so. Well, it is always interesting to hear from people like uh, like the great Chuck Froehler at 85 years old continuing to, to compete in triathlon uh, of all things. Uh, Chuck, give us a takeaway here. What can we learn from what you've experienced? Uh, what do you want people to know about life at age 85? Well, from everything I've read, you're never too old to start an exercise program. And uh, I uh, think it certainly has benefited me. 
And uh, no matter how old the person is, I think if they're that they got, they should maintain a, uh, a certain uh, level of activity. And if they're not doing it, they're really uh, missing out on something. Chuck, it's great advice. He is Chuck Froler, and, and Chuck, we really appreciate your time. And Bill, you know, one of the things we 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 see every time when we get on these. 85 and 90 year old athletes. Uh, you know, not only are they in great shape, but their minds are really, really sharp. And, and I'm sure Chuck would agree that that's one of the benefits is moving a lot keeps your mind young. I think so. And I think when you think about your own friends and what things do you talk about? If what you're talking about is techniques to stay in shape or what kind of shoe were you wearing or how did you get over this cramp or how did you get your times faster? It changes everything in your life like a chain reaction. And people like Chuck Fruler are just proof of what's possible for all of us if we take those first steps and try. It is incredible how fast an hour can fly by when an 85-year-old triathlete carries us over the finish line. More proof that anything's possible if we're lucky, if we take care of ourselves, and if we hang on to a great attitude. Because age can be a deterrent, but not like it used to be. It leads to a rich, vibrant, and fulfilling life right up to the very end. Speak it, Brother Bill. You know, it, it. In the coming weeks, uh, you'll hear more of this kind of stuff from people who are not just talking the talk, but actually living their lives in a way that defies conventional wisdom. Be sure to check out Growing Boulder's Facebook page. Click like, and you can see what a difference Growing Boulder can actually have in your life. There's a lot of Growing Boulder out there. Uh-huh. Don't forget the TV show and Surviving and Thriving. You know, sometimes in life, we all need a little boost to help us take that step down the road we always wanted to go. Don't wait any longer. Start Growing Boulder, and we'll see you right back here next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula, and our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age, it's about attitude. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty traps. Countless fire and flaming rope, using ideas as my maps. We'll meet on edges soon, said I.